morning. May it please the Lord. Today's scripture text is going to be John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. Uh, you can remain seated while I read the word. I'm actually going to read a little bit more than that. I'm going to pick up right in the middle of Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. And I want to start in verse 19. The woman said to him, that is Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father God, you are almighty. You are the creator. And yet you care for us. God, I pray and ask for a blessing on this congregation. Help us to preach and to hear the word of God in our worship. Amen. Okay. Well, let me start with a riddle. An Anglican priest, a Presbyterian minister, and a Baptist pastor walk into a pub to have lunch. Two of them order sodas. One orders a beer. Which one ordered the beer? It's a toss-up, right? It's got to be either the Anglican or the Presbyterian. Well, wrong. Not on this occasion. I should know because this really happened. I was there. Um, and you might be embarrassed to know that the, of the three ministers at that table that it was your Baptist, Reformed Baptist pastor that ordered the beer. Not the Anglican, not the Presbyterian, and not even the lawyer, but the Baptist. So what's the point of that story? Well, nothing, really. I just thought it was a funny little story about Kendall. Um, anyway, in the fourth chapter of John, just a little by way of background, we find Jesus stopping in Samaria. It was the middle of the day. Jesus, the scripture tells us that Jesus was tired and he was alone. The disciples had gone into town. And Jesus sat down by this well. And a local woman, we're told from Samaria, a Samaritan woman, not a Jew, came to the well to get some water. 
And Jesus and the woman began talking. And they had a back and forth about the woman's life. And of course, Jesus started talking about water. Because Jesus liked to talk and teach about things like water and bread and fruit and farming. That's how the greatest teacher, he's more than that, but the greatest teacher that ever lived taught, using the basic essentials of life on earth to convey the most profound truths. And that's good news. That's gracious. Now, returning to the text, the woman asked Jesus a question about worship. Back then, the Samaritans, her people, worshipped at the mountain in Samaria. But the Jews, they worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. So, the woman asked Jesus where people ought to worship, Samaria or Jerusalem. And back then, it was probably a hot you know, topic of debate. Of course, Jesus answered, neither. <laughs> because an hour was coming when worship at both places would cease. And further, in verse 23, Jesus said this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Essentially, Jesus declares to the woman at the well that the old way of worshiping God is ceasing and a new way of worshiping God is being inaugurated, initiated. So from this text, a question comes. How then shall we worship? How should we as earthly creatures worship the almighty creator? Now this is one of the most important questions in life. It concerns our highest duty, both as Christians and as human beings. And of course, like all great, important questions in life, there's been a lot of fighting over the answer. Even in our own day, Christians will talk about the quote-unquote worship wars. Now that's a reference to the infighting over things like musical style and liturgical formats that we've seen over the last 50 years or so here in America. Traditional or contemporary? Now, it seems to me that the people who use this phrase, worship wars, they do so sort of in a derogatory sense, meaning that the war is unnecessary because Christians shouldn't fight over such trivial matters like music style and whatnot. They would say, these are mere preferences. And so that's an appeal to moderation, to tolerate trivial differences that don't really matter. What I think is noteworthy about the churches that take this position, that our worship style is a matter of preference, is that they all seem to have the same style themselves. It all leads to one outcome, usually. I also think that this posture is contrary to what we hear Jesus saying to the woman at the well. Jesus tells her what true worship is like. And if there's true worship, there must also be false worship. There's a right way to worship, and there's most definitely a wrong way to worship. 
even if your heart likes it. God himself takes our way and our manner of our worship very seriously, and so should we, like we've seen from the Old Testament text today. Now, just because those sorts of things don't happen in worship doesn't mean that God doesn't feel the same way. He's merely delaying his judgment. Okay. So, my last point about that is that we need to be careful about not being too, what I would say, flippantly American, and speaking of worship is just merely a matter of preferred style. So, getting back to the text, true worship is worship of the Father. In this moment where Jesus is revealing the great covenantal shift that is happening in God's kingdom. A great change is happening. He announces that true worshipers will worship the Father, specifically. Revealing God as Father was part of Jesus' ministry on earth. It was hinted at in the Old Testament, for sure, but in the New Testament, Jesus reorients our hearts to God as Father. Remember how our Lord taught his disciples to to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We aren't only to worship God as the Creator Almighty. We should, but not only. We should also worship Him as our Father. He's close to us. He cares for us. He looks after us. And we should approach Him in this way. Moreover, He is our Father, plural. He is the Father of all true worshipers. We are his sons and daughters, which means that we're also brothers and sisters to each other. And so in that sense, true worship is a family event. It's public. It's corporate. It's not private. We need each other to worship rightly. And if COVID taught us anything, it's that. I think a lot of us, or at least myself, took the corporate nature of worship for granted before I experienced the government telling me that I couldn't go to church. And I think that truth is special here because that's how this church was birthed. The churches had shut down and said, no, we're going to gather on the Lord's Day and we're going to worship. We did it outside safely, you know, all that. So, Anyway, worship is a family affair. Further, true worship is a work of God's Grace, a work of God's grace. Later in verse 23, same verse, Jesus says, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is moving in this. The Father is at work, actively finding his children and bringing them into his house for worship. This is wonderfully good news that the Father is doing this. If a man was left to himself, who would seek to worship the Lord? let alone to worship him rightly. But God, in his great mercy, finds us and brings us into his family gathering, his house of worship. This dynamic of God's grace in worship is expanded upon a couple chapters later in John 6, when Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The Father gives the true worshipers to Jesus. Why? Why is it that God gives Jesus his children? 
Because Jesus is the true Son of God. He's like the big older brother that does everything right. And the Father is pleased with his true Son. Remember what happened at Christ's baptism. The audible voice of God declared from the heavens that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. And the true Son obeyed God perfectly and inherited heaven and earth. The Son of God earned the right to bring others into his Father's house. And so in this way, true worshipers are united to Christ in heaven. And this is the work of God's grace. God's grace is at work in true worship. So how then will these people worship, these true worshipers? Well, the text tells us a phrase, in spirit and truth. Now, there's so much to say here. I'll try to say just a few things. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, focuses our minds and hearts on Jesus Christ and His work, His sacrifice in true worship. True worshipers are marked and sealed with the Holy Ghost. They have been made new creatures by the indwelling of the Spirit, for no one can enter the kingdom of heaven, the Father's house, without having the Spirit. The book of Romans goes on and tells us that God has poured the Spirit into the hearts of His children so that they cry out in their inner man, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. So in this sense, true worshipers know something. They know that they belong to the Father. And they approach Him and worship with confidence. Confidence, not in themselves, but in the work of Christ. In short, true worshipers have what I would call assurance of salvation, fueled by the Spirit, grounded in truth. Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, is received by faith, by hearing about Christ crucified, I think most specifically on the Lord's Day through public worship. I would point to try to back this up to Galatians. I preached here a few years ago, and this was my text. In Galatians, Paul asked them, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It is through the preaching and the hearing and the trusting in Christ crucified that the Holy Spirit comes to us. And so true worship in the Spirit is centered on Christ crucified and risen. This causes true worshipers to trust Him, to be assured that Jesus will, what? Never cast out one of these that have been given to Him by the Father. Why would He ever do that? In Spirit and truth. Now, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he told her, or really kind of prophesied to her, that the old way of worship had ended, and that the new way of worship was being inaugurated. No longer would God's people gather in the temple in Jerusalem, 
with its what? What was going on there? Animal sacrifices and blood. Why? Why was that ending? Because Jesus is the temple of God. And Jesus is the sacrifice that cleansed the heavenly temple, as the author of Hebrews tells us. Now allow me to give a very brief history of the connection between worship and sacrifice. Because in this transition, we have discontinuity. We also have some continuity. Worship has always been centered around blood sacrifice. In Genesis, after the very first sin of Adam and Eve, God covered their nakedness with animal skins. An animal was sacrificed, substituted. It is necessary to clothe our sin with a sacrifice in order to approach a holy and living God. We also see that in worship, if you just go a little bit down in the scripture in Genesis, Abel. Abel brought what? A pleasing sacrifice to the Lord of an animal. And of course, that provoked jealousy in his brother Cain to the point where Cain murdered him over an act of worship. That's a worship war. <laughs> That's a worship war. Moving on, just a couple other examples. The time of Noah, we see God instituting worship through sacrifice. Genesis 8.20 says, Then Noah built an altar. This is after the flood. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings. And of course, the time of Abraham, he takes his son up. The Lord provides a substitute, a ram in the thicket. And then, of course, even more so with Moses, where we see God instituting modes of worship involving sacrifice in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple with David and Solomon. Thus, in the Old Covenant, God's people, they would gather to worship, and part of what they were doing was they were partaking and physically seeing animal sacrifices. Now, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, he is foreshadowing a great change. The time of offering animal sacrifice is coming to an end. Jesus contrasts the old way of worshiping in Jerusalem and offering animal sacrifices with the new way of true worship in the Spirit and truth. Empowered by the Spirit to see what? The truth that Christ, the Lamb of God, is the final sacrifice. As John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, behold, who takes away the sins of the world. And that's what worshiping in spirit and truth is in part. No longer do God's people gather to watch an animal sacrifice before our eyes, a mere symbol, a glorious symbol, yes, that God worked through for sure, but yet a shadow of the heavenly reality. Now in the new covenant, in the church age, we gather on the Lord's day and through our inner man by the spirit, we behold the sacrifice of Jesus that has already taken place. We preach and we hear the gospel message about Christ from the scriptures. We sing songs to each other and to the Lord, rehearsing what happened at the cross. And we partake of the body and blood of that sacrifice when we eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's the language of the book of John, through the Lord's Supper, the bread and wine of heaven. 
In this way, true worship in the Spirit and truth is worship of our loving Father, fueled by the Holy Ghost, and focused on Jesus as the sacrificial and conquering Lamb, as we know from Revelation 4 and 5. Now, sort of a side note, but a very important foundational one. True worship is Trinitarian in nature. True worship, as we see from the Scripture today, the Father's involved, the Spirit's involved, and Jesus Christ is involved. And so true worship involves the triune God. For God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and truth. And so unlike the Old Testament, worship in the New Testament must be focused on that final sacrifice. Oh, coming to an end here. Just a few more points. I'm I'm a history guy, so I'm going to talk a little bit about history. Now, throughout the age of the church, she has met and failed this standard to various degrees. There have been many seasons of recovery of true worship. For example, I'll go to the 1400s, 1500s, the time of the Reformation. The state of the church at that time found herself drifting away from true worship. And I want to focus on three elements very quickly. The meal, the Lord's Supper, the message, and the music. The meal. At that time during the Reformation, well, let me, let me add a point about this, this recovery. When we think of the Reformation, we often think of the great recovery of, uh, that we're justified by faith alone, uh, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, in the solas, and this great doctrinal recoveries, these great propositional truths, which is totally true and totally wonderful. But I think just as equally important, and I would point to John's Calvin little track on this, was the reforms that happened in public worship. With the recovery of great truth and change becomes the recovery of worship and change in worship often as well. So, in the medieval church, I think, just go through it real quickly, the meal. The meal often wasn't, you were, congregants were not allowed to partake, not everybody partook. Sometimes it was just the priest that got to drink the wine. They would, they would do it just every once in a while. And the message. The message was, was Christ being communicated? It was often given in Latin. People didn't speak Latin. They couldn't understand. This was especially troubling because most people didn't read. So this is where they went to hear about God. And then when it was the message, it was, off, it was often works-based, not on what Christ has accomplished, but on how, you know, the basic, how do we get to heaven? We earn our way to heaven, which is, you know, just a common theme. And then also the music. The music was different. It was done by professionals. It was not, um, the people were not partaking. So when the reformers came about, people like Calvin, Knox, others, they sort of changed those three things so that now, Um, The meal would be offered to everybody more frequently. The preaching would be in the common tongue, and it would be centered on Christ crucified. But then also the music changed. The music changed. They started singing as people. 
in the pews started to sing. And it became the sounds in a church building would have been the voices of the people. And, you know, the Reformed churches worshipped like that for several hundred years. And that wasn't unique to them. That's exactly how the early church worshipped as well. Anyway, fast forward to our own day. I think we are in a recovery of true worship in spirit and truth. I think the things that were recovered in the Reformation sort of went away. Now we find ourselves in this situation where um, oftentimes the music is mostly done by professionals on a stage. And you might have some sway babes in the, you know, in the back in a little bit, but there's not a lot of participation, congregational singing. And the meal has been obscured, too. I've been to churches um, and, you know, where they just put the Lord's Supper in the back and it's help yourself. And so maybe they're not actively prohibiting people from taking it, but because it's not you know, part of regular worship, they've sort of um, withheld that. The shepherds have withheld that from the people. And then, of course, the message. The message. The preaching. Christ crucified. Anyway, I'll go ahead and try to land this plane with this. Uh, the worship wars. Mere preferences. I think there... I, I understand sometimes why reform style of worship can be shocking to people. I also think that public worship is part of our Father's discipleship. That sometimes our tastes and preferences need to be changed. And sometimes we need to turn the volume down on the entertainment. Why? So that the Holy Spirit can turn the volume up on the final sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. And that's our aim in worship, to glorify the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you make yourself known to us, that you strengthen us in our inner man to behold the riches of the kingdom of God, your sacrifice and your work your resurrection, your ascension. It is only by the Holy Spirit that these truths can be pressed upon our hearts. And I pray that you do that for us and for all the local churches here in this area. That you would lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. And that not one of the children that has been given to him would ever be cast out. We know this is true. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.